Welcome to the American Anthropological Association podcast miniseries in support of the 2022 annual meeting. I'm your host, Matt Arts, and on this miniseries, we'll be talking with AAA members about the theme of unsettling landscapes and how it relates to their work. We will also get their input on the greater Seattle area and what they think is important to see when you are in town for the conference. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm here today with Peter Knudsen, Professor of Anthropology at Seattle Central College in the Arts, Humanities, and Social Science Department. Peter, thanks for joining us today on this uh, little mini-series in anticipation of the upcoming conference. Would you um, maybe start by just telling us a little bit about your anthropological origin story, you know, like, you know, why you studied anthropology and, um, you know, just what drew you to it? Okay. Uh, well, I'm a native of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, my great-grandparents migrated here from Norway a long time ago. So I grew up here, uh, grew up in Everett, which is an industrial city north of here. Began as a commercial fisherman in 1972 and uh, was going to school. Uh, after high school, I went to Stanford for, for two years and I was uh, heavily involved in the anti-war movement. Uh, I was organizing draft resistance I testified in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee at Stanford uh, in 1972. <clears throat> I got tried by the university for disrupting recruiting by a munitions manufacturer in the Student Placement Center, and I was uh, suspended indefinitely from Stanford. So after that, I, I got accepted at New School for Social Research in New York. My question that I had after organizing against the war for a couple of years was why do Americans support policies that screw them over or, or screw over other people too in other parts of the world? And, and, and you know, uh, I, I had read all the Marxist stuff uh, about, you know, uh, proletarianization and the farmers are going to go into the city and, and they're going to work in factories and they'll become proletarian, they'll become internationalized. I grew up in Everett uh, with factory workers and that's not what happened. They actually went out and bought pickup trucks and went into consumerism. So I had these fundamental questions about what is American culture and, and, and why do people make the choices they make? And, and so at, at New School, I studied with a lot of different writers and artists and uh, people all over the spectrum. And I ran across one book by an anthropologist named Jules Henry, uh, who was a student of Franz Boas. And uh, the book was called Culture Against Man. It's, it's a critique of American culture from the standpoint of someone who did their research in the Amazon and with kinship-based and traditional societies. Uh, and it's, it's a devastating book. And I go, this is brilliant. Uh, this provides a whole lot of insight into the culture, you know, the culture of competitiveness. Why do Americans feel good when somebody else fails? Is, it, is this... Is this why? What are these basic lessons that we learn in terms of constantly feeding our desire, uh, never being satisfied with what we have? Um, and so I, I read that book, and it just resonated with me. It was very, very powerful. Um, and so my initial input into anthropology was really coming out of interest in understanding my own culture. But in any, in any case. This whole time that I was going through school and going through the anti-war uh, period, I was also uh, a commercial fisherman, and that was my subsistence base. 
So I then went back home and I applied to the University of Washington Anthropology Department, which historically had been focused on Native American studies, um, people like Erna Gunther. And so here I am in grad school uh, trying to get a PhD. And I was just reflecting on my own life at that point. I had spent seven years in the Gulf of Alaska working on fishing boats, taking notes. Uh, and at the time, I wasn't anticipating becoming an anthropologist. I was just writing because it was a way to maintain my mental balance in a situation of heavy drinking, uh, crew humiliation, lots of anger. But there was something about fishing at the same time that was very honest. So I decided that I was going to write what was told uh, to me was an autoethnographic dissertation. So I wrote an autoethnographic dissertation, which was a chronicle of a mutiny on a fishing boat in in, in uh, southeast Alaska. It wasn't heroic. It was more like an ugly divorce. Uh, all, all of the crew members were from ethnic Norwegian Lutheran community. Um, but the drinking was out of hand. And there was also something about the white working class culture, you know, in terms of gender authoritarianism, things like that, which just jumped out at so it took me 10 years because I was supporting a family as a fisherman. <clears throat> I'd be gone four months a year fishing in Alaska, and then I'd come back and try to blow life back into my project. But I finally, I finally made it through. <clears throat> Most of the people in the department didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, you know, I'd been reading people like Paul Rabineau and others who, who were trying to bring a more self-reflexive moment into anthropology, you know, understanding the the position of the anthropologist, the political position of the anthropologist. And so my dissertation was written by someone who was a subordinate in a work situation, someone who's looking up. You know, Laura Nader talks about studying up. And so that, that was ultimately in my dissertation. It was really about power, language, working class culture. And uh, so that's what I did. And and I draw a lot of material from my own work experiences in my teaching at Seattle Central, which is a majority minority working class uh, culture. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be in class and I'll tell students things like, have you ever had a boss order you to do what you're already doing? And they'll like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, what's that about? I mean, so I'm taking my own experiences where I, I watched humiliation at the workplace and I know how it operates to sort of unpack the experiences of, of my students. And what I'm trying to do with anthropology in the community college setting is I'm trying to teach it as a form of sort of existential reflection. And so I am trying to make them more self-reflexive about their own experiences. And so, so I've kind of integrated my own autobiography, my own uh, coming of age, both in terms of class and in terms of anthropology, into my teaching style. Yeah, there's a few things I think we want to come back to in that story, but let me just pick up with something. So, you know, fishing is critical to your life. Um, you've been in it a long time. It's also critical to the livelihood of many up there. You know, you name it from sort of indigenous groups with, you know, tied into historical practices to just sort of the modern, you know, fishery industry. And so how has it changed in your time? And that, that could be a little bit, you know, the response might be something about the industry and it might be even external threats like environment. I'm just curious to know what have you witnessed over your career? 
Well, I've been an I've been an activist in the fishing industry uh, the whole time. I my wife and I we have a family business and we bought our own uh, small boat, a gillnetter, in 1979. And my son is now in the industry, uh, and uh, we're in an industry that's heavily corporate, heavily dominated by one or two multinationals, most of whom um, buy their fish, do a quick freeze on it, and then export it to Shanghai so that that salmon's doing an 8,000 mile round trip after it dies, uh, all to avoid American labor. Uh, and so I'm still immersed, and I still actually sell fish on the weekends. I'll go down to the boat, fisherman's terminal, and sell. And sell. Uh, but how has it changed? Well, technologically, it's changed a lot. When I started, we didn't have survival suits. Uh, our death rate was incredibly high in the industry. Uh, the boat I was on, built in 1910, didn't have a radar. Uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was fairly dicey. And it's over the over the years, it's gotten safer. I mean, we still lose people, but it's gotten much safer. Um, but the but if if you're in the commercial fishing industry, you have a big target on your back because you have all these environmental threats. We have fought things from open pit mining, uh, Rio Tinto zinc. I was involved in trying to stall forestall one of their mines on that was going to be put on top of salmon streams right now that's a huge fight in Bristol Bay uh, they want to develop that develop in quotes uh, and then uh, other issues we've had I was involved in uh, helping to organize around the Clinton Forest plan which successfully got reforms to federal logging practices uh, and we got a 200-foot buff buffer strip uh, of around salmon bearing streams. Other issues uh, that we've we've seen, um, we have industrial interests in the state that are not friends of salmon habitat and have repeatedly tried to uh, destroy commercial and tribal livelihoods. Uh, other battles that we've been involved in in the fishing industry, battles to retain working waterfront. This is huge. Uh, this is a national issue. What you find is gentrification on both coasts. You drive out to Maryland and, and very hard to find uh, commercial fishing locations uh, that haven't been taken over by um, pleasure boats and yachts and, and gentrification. Here in Seattle, about 10 years ago, we had a major, major fight. Um, downtown is being redeveloped by Paul Allen's group, uh, Vulcan, and they had their eyes set on Fisherman's Terminal. Seattle is unique in that it has one of the largest fishing fleets, or probably the, the only major American city that has a large fishing fleet right in the middle of the city. Uh, and it's sitting on top of prime real estate, downtown real estate. And so there was a push to, um, well, first of all, there was a disinvestment from the industrial facility. It was collapsing. Fire department wouldn't come down. We had four people die in one winter no ladders. I mean, they just let it go to hell. And we created a, a movement um, to save the working waterfront in Seattle. <clears throat> it was covered nationally, New York Times, LA Times. <clears throat> and, uh, and we successfully um, got commercial fishing priority. So we still have, this is one of the few places in Seattle, Fisherman's Terminal, which is a place people should visit. It's a multicultural place. You go down there and you will run into Clinkett, Haida, uh, Shimshian, uh, local Muckleshoot, Suquamish, 
Croatian heritage fishermen, Norwegian heritage fishermen. So we fought to keep that, and that was a successful fight. And of course, in all these fights that I've been involved in, I, I bring my anthropological training to bear, you know, because it's all about alliance building. And it's all about trying to be, I guess Marvin Harris would call it emic, trying to be on the inside of consciousness of other folks and, and bringing them together on points of unity and making unity with people who, whom, whom you may not agree with on a whole host of issues. But you can come together on a single point where we, we're all in the same boat and we can organize. So when you took a look at the theme for this year, you know, what, what did you take away from that? Well, the first thing that occurred to me when I saw the word unsettling uh, was a book by Wendell Berry called The Unsettling of America. Um, and in that book, uh, Barry talks about, of course, n native genocide, natives being displaced. Um, and, and then he talks about how the economic system that we live under, that there's an impulse, there's an in indigenous impulse that everybody has to create a sense of place, a sense of home. And the economic system that we have is continually eroding that. You know, I think Marx said one time, uh, everything that is solid melts into air, um, describing capitalism. And, and that's kind of what we're dealing with here in Seattle, is rapid unsettling. Um, you may recall in 1999, um, there, there were the massive anti-World Trade Organization demonstrations in Seattle. Most of the people arrested at that, there were 50,000 people downtown blocking uh, all the corporate uh, representatives from meeting. But um, but a lot of the people that were on the street were actually locals. And underneath the surface issue of world trade and neocolonialism was really a lot of resentment from local people about the displacement, that the gentrification that had been, that's been happening. They did not identify with Amazon. They did not identify with Starbucks. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're coming from the bottom up and uh, they didn't have a voice. And I think that was actually part of the subtext of, of that whole demonstration. And so, and since that time, since 1999 and, and the massive demonstrations in Seattle, we've had continual assault on people's ability to live sustainably in Seattle. You know, it, Seattle is like divided in half. You have the ship canal that runs through the middle of the city. South of the ship canal is historically um, black indigenous people of color, uh, working class. North of the ship canal, wealthier areas. Um, and, and what's been happening is, uh, of course, um, south of the ship canal has been rapidly gentrifying. The historically African-American area known as the Central District People are being priced out. They're having to move to the outskirts to places like Renton, um, Durian, Beacon Hill, which is historically the uh, Asian American center. See, my school is at the intersection of the African American community, uh, Beacon Hill, the Asian American community. And since it's also vocational, it's also the working class hub. Um, and so we're watching this erosion that's happening, you know, and asset prices being bid up. 
and so when I think of unsettling, uh, I think of the original removal. Uh, my, I think of my friends in the Duwamish tribe who are still struggling to get recognition here in Seattle. These are a good friend of mine is a great grandson of uh, Chief Seattle, a guy named Ken Workman. They've been they were going to get recognition back under the Clinton administration, and then when the Bush administration, Bush two came in, they reversed that, and so now they're fighting. Um, and so there's the original unsettling, but but then we have continual day to day unsettling, and and so I think, you know. Uh, I mean, here I'm, I'm, I'm thinking somehow of uh, Gary Snyder's work. Um, Gary Snyder writes a lot about uh, bioregionalism. He was a Seattle native, also studied anthropology, well-known poet and writer. Uh, and he talks a lot about the indigenous impulse and creating a sense of home, which is the antithesis to that feeling of being unsettled. And so that's what we try to do, you know. Um, in my classes, I try to get people to realize the things that they know that they already know but haven't realized yet. I mean, it, I try to get people to realize I'm trying to settle them uh, in the sense that you are, you really understand your world. You understand it. Let's give it a voice. And let's, and, and in doing that, um, we're, we're starting to create, we create, create solidarity between uh, between people. And so one of the techniques I use in my classes is uh, I have students write autoethnographies. And so I get autoethnographies of labor, you know. Uh, I get autoethnographies of coming to America stories, domestic violence, uh, incarceration, military service. And I take those autoethnographies and I asked the students, okay, can I put these together in an anonymous compilation? And that is actually what I use as a text in many of my classes. So the students are actually learning horizontally from each other. And I find it's been, it's been really rewarding and interesting for me. That's a form of, I guess, settling, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, certainly an interesting perspective. And I really appreciate the way you're using, you know, those autoethnographies to sort of teach maybe the next generation. Um, Speaking of teaching, so a course you have coming up this fall is Anarchy and Anthropology. And so could you maybe um, you know, share a little bit about that course and you know, the perspective that you teach in that course and what the relationship is between those terms? I, I think there's a lot of overlap between uh, the perspective of traditional anarchist thinkers like Peter Kropotkin, who is also a biologist, um, and his book is seminal book, Mutual Aid. Um, essentially, anthropology has one foot in the Paleolithic and one foot in, and also in traditional society. So our foundational concept is kinship. Uh, and I think implicit in that is this notion that people can organize their own lives. Uh, people don't have to have authoritarian structures to, to get along and, and, to, and to reproduce themselves. Um, and so there's a dovetailing between that perspective and even language itself is a form of reciprocity. You know, when I speak, I'm implying an equality with, with the here. Um, so um, there's a, uh, 
are dovetailing between that and and the work of um, somebody like David Graver. Um, you know, Graver's work uh, uh, has been so good and so useful for students. Or James Scott, um, and um, and that's essential. They're taking a bottom-up perspective. Like if you read James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, every chapter is like a bottom-up perspective. Like say, um, uh, oh, uh, who is the woman who wrote about uh, Jane Jacobs' American Cities, Life and Death of American Cities, versus Le Corbusier, you know, who's designing Brasilia from the top down. Uh, and so there's... Uh, Anthropology and anarchy are intimately related. Um, and my understanding of anarchy is not necessarily as a large-scale political philosophy. It's more about daily ethics. Uh, and it's the, it's the ethos that we have in daily life. I tell people and students, you know, that, that you don't do things for your friendship group just out of profit motive, or if you do, it's pathological. You know, it's like to, to go back to Marcel Mauss and, and his, his great book, The Gift. What humans fundamentally do is give each other gifts. We exchange. Um, and uh, that's, that's essentially, uh, that's an anthropological insight. Um, we, didn't, we didn't originate money. Uh, as a, sort of a rational way that instead of exchanging chickens for pigs, we can we can have these little tokens. That's not the way money originated. It, it originated with war and conquest and empire. Uh, Graeber makes this point in, in uh, his book on debt. So um, so yeah, there's a lot of overlap uh, in, in in terms of that. And and fundamentally, what I'm trying to get students to do is operate self-reflexively so they're thinking about their own lives and they're taking these anthropological like i i did that essay for counterpunch and the commencement speech on insulting the meat uh and you know that's a famous anthropological story which is really about the ways in which tribal people try to maintain collectivism uh and try to tame the ego of the hunter uh and and those are lessons that we all need because we're living in a culture which has suppressed those lessons, which is the foundation of social life. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a long-winded way of talking about the overlap between anthropology and, and traditional anarchist perspective on the world. Great, thanks. And, you know, in there you mentioned the gift and you mentioned sort of social life and so in this context of sharing, um, as somebody who's from the Pacific Northwest, anything that you would suggest people check out when they come out for the conference, any you know interesting tips or things that they should visit, whether that's in the city or even if they venture out? Well, of course, I, I think one of the most interesting places is Fisherman's Terminal, uh, which is uh, in the center of Seattle. Um, 350 small family fish businesses. Um, you may also want to check out the two documentaries that were done on public television about the fight to save Fisherman's Terminal. They're on YouTube. One's called uh, Fisherman's Terminal and the other one's called Fisherman's Terminal Revisited. Um, it's a really interesting anthropological story about alliance building. Um, 
But Fisherman's Terminal is, fast, is a fascinating, and you can walk the docks, and, and you can see. And also, if you're in that region, um, there's a very massive park called Discovery Park. In the center of the park, there's a, a Native American center called the Daybreak Star Center, uh, which uh, was a result of an occupation that, that went on in the 1970s. Um, and it's a beautiful park to walk around. Um, so that, that would be a nice little excursus. Of course, there's other, um, if you want to do, um, you've got the Wing Luke Museum, which, which is like uh, sort of the history of the Asian Americans in the, in the region. You've got uh, El Centro de la Raza, um, which is sort of uh, Latino, Latinx uh, center, um, Northwest African American Museum. Also, the uh, National Nordic Museum in, uh, in Ballard is, is fascinating. Um, so those would all be sort of like local destinations that you could visit to get a sense of the different groups within, within Seattle. Fantastic. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, Peter, thanks for taking the time and sharing all that you did. Very uh, interesting story. Uh, it seems like you've been involved in a, a lot of interesting movements uh, to fight the good fight and uh, appreciate hearing those and you just sharing uh, your perspective on on teaching. My pleasure. I, I enjoyed uh, enjoyed putting it together. You know, so it's, uh, uh, I, I'm really pleased that the meetings are going to be out here and, uh, and the theme is quite interesting. So. It sounds sounds great. Great. I hope to see you there. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you in Seattle this November. For more information, check out the conference website at annualmeeting.americananthro.org. And if you like what you hear, please also check out the AAA podcast directory for other great anthropology podcasts, including my own, Anthropology in Business and Anthro to UX. Thanks again, and see you in November.